welcome to episode 338 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So again, we have a format here. I'm obligated to say we're going to talk about the fourth commandment, but we used to have this period of time. What Not but. I mean, the fourth commandment is fantastic. We're going to get to this lovely gift that God gives us. So <laughs> I didn't mean to like kind of distinguish that from all things good and just say it's not relevant. That's not what I meant. I meant the but being we used to have this kind of process where we kind of participate in some perfunctory kind of like just banter because that's what people expect right before you get to like right. the seriousness yeah. or the weightiness of the topic. So I'm going to re return us to this real quick. And this could, some will say, fall within the realm firmly of an affirmation or maybe even a denial, but I'm just going to take it out of that altogether because you and I share many things. There is one thing that I'm, I'm not sure that we've spoken about that you and I share, and that is a handedness. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and this is a big deal. And it's not like the handedness of most people. It's true. It's left-handedness. Yes. Yeah, it's straight already up, uh, straight up. Uh, what's his face with the sword in the guy's gut? Left-handedness. <laughs> yes, it's straight, straight up. Yes. So here's the thing. I was thinking about this this week. And I feel like we have to start with a little bit of drama because I feel that there's a sense that I might need to confront you about something because you are left-handed. And that is, you don't use a left-handed mouse, do you? I do not, no. How dare you? I have a reason, though. I, I have a disability. No, no, unacceptable. Go no, on. no, no. It's the same reason. It's the same reason you don't play a left-handed guitar. guitar. How dare you? I got so I got so flustered and angry that I I couldn't even talk. I, I used to work for the Geek Squad, so I was constantly using other people's computers because I was repairing them. So it's like really, really hard if you're used to using a left-handed mouse to switch to a right-handed mouse on the fly. I can use a left-handed mouse. Your your sister uses a left-handed mouse and I don't have any problem with it. Um, but yeah, it's just like, I, that's why I don't play a left-handed guitar either. Well, here's the, so I, I understand the left-handed guitar because there's like a price point difference there. Also, I think this, there's a difference between like dexterity and power. So I actually think lefties have an advantage with the guitar because if you play it right-handed, all your dexterity is falling to the left hand, which is doing all of the chord formation. So I actually yeah. think we have an advantage, but this is just my clarion call to all lefties who are listening to say, abandon your right-handed mouses, fight the man. Don't let the man tell you that you need to have a right mouse and then a right click, which is like the inside figure, like your index finger, switch it up. And I say this because it's come to my mind recently. I had some people at work, my lovely IT people who are helping me to do some installation stuff. And they discovered the left-handed situation and suddenly had this like great realization about life as a left-handed person. And I thought, yeah, that's right. Like <laughs> you, you guys make, so like, here's something I'll just share that's super embarrassing about me. I was again at work recently, I think within like the last four months, I was using a pair of scissors and I happened just to remark casually to a colleague, like you'd think they could make scissors like way more comfortable. And this person said to me, why are you holding them with your left hand? And I was like, because... <laughs> I'm left-handed and that's the hand I do all this stuff with. And they were like, switch it. And I was like, well, I can't use it. It'd be very uncomfortable for me. And there was like, just stop for a second, switch it. I turned it to the other hand and I was like, oh my word, this is so comfortable. What is going on? Yeah. 
Yeah. So maybe I have a little bit of defense. I'm not, I'm not a like pure left-handed left-handed person. So like most lefties are not a hundred percent left-handed. That's true. There's a lot of things that they usually do with the right hand. Some of that is because of this phenomenon you're describing where like the world is built for right-handed yes, people. So like exactly. you, you kind of have to do some things with your right hand. Like you have to use the, your right hand to, um, to like shift the shifter in your car. Or right. like you have to use your right hand if you're going to use a scissors unless you like bring your own scissors to wherever you're going. So, but I'm actually like, I'm not ambidextrous. I don't have equal dexterity. But for example, like when I, uh, when I play baseball, I, I catch with my right hand or I, I throw with my right hand. But if I want to, if I want to actually be a left-hander, then I have to have a glove on my right hand. So like, it's very complicated. Or I, when I play soccer, I kick with my right foot. So I'm right, I'm right footed in soccer, uh, which actually I wish I was left footed in soccer. Cause you have a huge advantage if you're left, left exactly. footed in soccer. But um, mostly it's like things that require dexterity or like fine, fine motor skills. I do with my left hand and things that are more strength based. I do with my right hand. Yeah, that that I would say is often very common. My my father, your father in law, like 100 percent lefty. I'm not quite 100 percent, but I think that's just because I've been compromised by the world, which tells me that I must use my right hand. And I think I mentioned on this podcast before at church work day. I once uh, melted a vest because uh, the I was using a leaf blower with my left hand. Yeah. And then the guard and everything is situated in such a way to protect the right-handed person or to not expose the right-handed person to the heat of the exhaust, oh, yeah. which I was just doing. So I, I'm just saying, listen, if you're lefty, I'll explore the left-handed mouse. Just give it a try, loved ones. Uh, you're going to love it. It's fantastic. It will cause others in your life a great amount of grief of the right hand. And then you can say, listen, that's me all the time. So I think it's just worth it to try. It's it's super fun. So that's that's not even an affirmation at all. That's just like a bonus that everybody gets because <laughs> I think that people probably don't know that you and I are both left-handed, but that is our jam. It's true. I Unfortunately, it seems like my son is shaping up to be a right-hander. Are we sure about that? We've tried to encourage him when we hand him things. So like, you know, when, when a baby's little, you know, you, you put the spoon in, like you put the food on the spoon and then you put the spoon in their hand and they like, they know, they know how to like get the food into their mouth with the spoon. We try to like hand him the spoon to his left hand and he reaches across his body to grab it with the right hand. So I don't think we're going to, I mean, I guess we could do like the old school thing where we like tie his right hand behind his back or something and make it, but I'm, we're not going to do oh, that. Wow. Don't call anybody. I'm not actually going to do that. Um, so yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, he's breaking the the mold, which seems like not proof positive, but it seems like pretty good proof that it's not genetic. Because both yes. both of us, both my wife and I, are left handed, and my uh, my mother was left handed. I think my father was right handed. Um, your father is is left handed. Your mother is right handed. So. That's correct. It seems like it should be a pretty low percentage chance if it was strictly genetic, um, but who knows? The yeah, Lord, the oh, Lord. And my family, we get with their, they had four children. They're equally split. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I, don't, I don't know if that says anything. It's a very small sample size. Two last things I'll say about this. Uh, one is that I thought this would be helpful for people to know because you've been talking a lot about journaling, journaling yeah. generally. They should know you're doing all that stuff with your left hand. Yeah. So. That's its own challenge. Lefties know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. 
Uh, but in addition to that, I am not that old. I mean, I'm 42. However, I remember being taught scripts in elementary school and then making me do it in, in my right hand when I was in the classroom. And then I would go home and I would finish it in my left hand and just not tell anybody. Now, I'm sure they were trying to help me in their own way by saying, you'll smudge less if you write with your right hand. But the last thing I'll say, and if my mother is listening, I think she'll remember this, although she might not know that it has had such an impact on me and my psyche as a left-handed person, is we at sometimes used to go to this Christian uh, retreat on a lake in New York for vacation. And they're like all these activities is like a retreat might have. One of them was learning to do all of like kind of like writing or calligraphy. And I desperately wanted to do this. And they told her, he can't because he's left-handed. And I remember being devastated that. And also kind of like, what is this rule? What is yeah. this fascism that I cannot do this thing because um, you don't even know me because I'm left-handed. I feel like we need to have a conversation about right-handed privilege. Like, I feel like, I feel like that's actually a thing. Like I still, this is like a little known, this is like a, I, I deep now. All right. I, I feel like this is the Let's, episode now. I open the door. You open the door with your left hand, which is hard to do. Um, like I still sometimes struggle telling the difference between left and right. So like when I said like you use your right hand to shift the shifter, I was going to say you use your right hand to do the turn signal. And I had to like think really hard in my head and actually be like, no, no, like the turn signals on the left. The reason is because the mnemonic that my kindergarten teacher taught me was you write with your right hand. Oh, wow. that was the mnemonic. So like my whole life, every time, you know, like when someone says lefty, loosey, righty, tighty, right. I actually, uh, this is a whole different thing, but I actually struggle with that mnemonic too, but that's because I'm over analytical, but like the mnemonic for, for learning left and right was you write with your right hand, but I, I didn't write with my right hand. So I still, sometimes I'm like, like people have like, oh, it's your other right. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like this is legitimately, I, I'm confused from years of being told the wrong thing. So yeah, I, man, people don't get it. If they're, they're not a lefty, they don't understand. Yeah. There's a small portion of our listenership that is absolutely resonating. And the other side is like, just move on. <laughs> it's true. just move on. It's true. And that's, and that is their right-handed privilege. That they yeah, get. that exactly. Yeah. If, listen, if you're righty, you should just know the world was made for you whether that's tools or experiences, doorknobs, all of this stuff literally was made for you. Last question, which hand do you wear your watch on? My right. Yeah, see, uh, here's, maybe I'm falling under my own conviction. I did betray myself. I did eventually go to the left side on that. I, I, that's just where it feels comfortable. I don't know if there's yeah. an etiquette to it. It's just where it feels comfortable. I, this is another memory that I have as a child that my father is saying to me, like, which which hand feels more comfortable? And I put the watch on my right. For years, I wore my watch on my right hand. And sometimes people would say to me, you have your watch on your right hand. <laughs> like, and that wasn't a statement of like fact. It was kind of like, it was a statement. It's of like, a, yeah. Or sometimes, sometimes it's just like, like, are you okay? Is there something wrong? Yes. Right. 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 Like, is there a reason? Like, do you have a left hand? You know, like that kind of thing. And it's like, yeah. So I did. Switch In fact, eventually. I do. Yeah, I did. I did switch eventually, which like, yeah, well, I mean, we could go for like six or seven hours on this easily. So <laughs> let's get into like actual affirmations and denials. So I think this conversation in some ways covered both, but that was just bonus, everybody. Yeah. So what are you affirming with on this episode? Well, my affirmation will be short, uh, 
So I'm affirming a lecture. This is like the most paradoxical thing ever. I'm affirming a lecture that was delivered at ShepCon 2023, uh, which is crazy because I just the other week was like, I am never going to go to ShepCon because I'm not interested in any of those speakers. But the lecture was delivered by, I don't know anything about this person except that he delivered this fire lecture. Uh, a guy named Mike Riccardi, and it's called Pursuing Unity on the Trinity. Ooh. And I feel like we could just shut down the podcast because everything that we talk about in terms of like EFS, he said more clearly and more articulately in an hour and 15 minutes than we have in probably not exaggerating, probably 20 or 25 hours worth of shows wow. covering the topic. Um, it was concise. It was clear. Um, he it wasn't an exegetical lecture. Um, but it, it was grounded in the the necessary deductions and consequences from scripture, from what we affirm to be true. Um, this was so good. I'm actually going to put it out into our into our Reformed Brotherhood feed. I'm actually going to publish it as an episode. Um, I don't know for sure when I have to try to find the right kind of link so that it's actually pulling from their servers, because if they're getting traffic and stuff for it, if they're, you know, they're getting revenue traffic through their servers or something, I want to make sure they get the credit there. Um, they're wanting, there's no copyright listed on it. So it's not like we're breaking any laws, but, um, but it was just that good that I think everybody needs to listen to it. Um, I'm not sure how any fair-minded reviewer of, of the situation could walk away from this lecture and still think that EF, EFS particularly, which was his specific subject, um, how anyone could walk away from this thinking that EFS is still a valid biblical option. So it was just that good. Um, so that's the affirmation. Go listen to it. Uh, if you're listening to this, it will automatically populate to your ear holes sometime in the next week, probably. Um, it was just really that good. Um, it was it was just absolutely phenomenal. Listen to it like three or four times. Just continue wow. listening to it. It was just that good. Well, you know, I will. I mean, that's high praise given that we've talked about this so extensively for so long. Yeah. And yeah. In some ways, yeah. I said this to someone the other day, in some ways, I'm actually sort of shamed by how clear he was able to be compared to how many hours I've had to spend trying to like articulate this. Some of that's just the format and, and you know, his is a lecture that was like refined and, and like written over time. And we're doing this ad kind of uh, sort of off the cuff, but yeah, just, just listen to it. If, if you have the decision between listening to our next episode and listening to this, just listen to this and skip our next episode. I mean, don't do that oh. either, but oh, if wow. you have to, then that it's actually more valuable to you to listen to that than it would be to listen to our next episode. Well, that's that's probably true. Here's what I think unites like what you just said and my affirmation. That is part of what we said is like the mission of this podcast was to edify God's people, the brothers and sisters. So let me come alongside and do some more edification because you just edified a fantastic sounds like lecture that I'm definitely going to put in my own ear holes. And I'm going to go, I, I see, it feels like I've been doing like these applications or internet or AI affirmations for the longest time, totally breaking the cycle. Here's some edification for your mouth because I'm going with a food affirmation Ooh. and it's maybe like not quite a food hack, but it's on the margin, but I think it's still a strong affirmation. That is if you are making some kind of food that requires sour cream, especially let's say like of the Mexican variety. Let's say my wife recently made some fajitas. Here's my affirmation. Just scratch, jettison the whole sour cream and instead just replace it. Trust me, just replace it with French onion dip. Whatever you're doing Ooh. that requires sour cream instead. So nachos, fajitas, 
So your one option is replace it with French onion dip. Now, people, I'm sure, just like screaming to the sky saying like you're mixing flavors. And I say to you, yes, every tribe, every nation, every time. So it's like a a French American Mexican fusion meal. Yes. And and I was just surprised. This came about, I'm not a genius, of course, but thank you. It came about because like I just made an accident and we didn't have sour cream but instead i was like well this french is like mostly sour cream right so like let me see how this plays and it was absolutely delicious here is the second option i'm I'm still proposing to you that you should get rid of the sour cream and try something different here's what you can do instead too for the loved ones that have a trader joe's nearby take your sour cream uh, or, or say put it in the fridge then get in your vehicle go to trader joe's and get what's called everything but elote seasoning blend so and then you'd mix that with your sour cream and it is going to like magnify whatever you're eating, especially if it's of like the Mexican variety by like a hundred, 10,000 fold. Like we're, we're talking like, don't bury your talents in the ground on this one. Like <laughs> this is going to be like exceptional. So in case anybody's curious, because I'd understand this too. So throughout like Mexico and certain cities across the U S street vendors sell this like a mouthwatering, well-seasoned corn on the cob, which is known as elote. So that seasoning, it's usually smothered in some kind of like mayo or cream that's rolled in grated Parmesan or cotilla cheese. It's dusted with like chili powder and lime juice. The seasoning contains all of that, hence this, this name, everything but the elote seasoning. So put that in your sour cream, then slap that on your nachos or fajitas or tacos. I am telling you, you will thank us. And the way that you can do that is by going to patreon.com backslash <laughs> brotherhoods. And I'm just kidding. Patreon.com slash Jesse's recipes. <laughs> I'm just standing on the shoulders of greats, but what a way to praise God and to enjoy his creation. So I'm just saying, get rid of the sour, the boring sour cream. I mean, I love sour cream. I don't know how you feel about sour cream, okay. but I love I would sour eat cream. it with a spoon. Yeah, that exactly. was this just is like, like, yeah. Next level. It just adds like a little bit more. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's like the proper venue for affirmations. Yeah. So Jesse is now campaigning for us to be a top 50 food podcast. So we've already got the market on the healthcare podcast going on. That's that's true. Although the food market is the next, uh, the next target. Although there's like nothing that's good for you in this. (laughs) No, there isn't. There's not. You could do like ranch. You could do ranch dressing too. Like, like sour cream based ranch dressing. That'd be pretty good. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, but this is like, again, it's just like kind of next level. If you want a little bit more, for kind of just adding like more spice, but I can't get enough behind this Trader Joe's seasoning. The everything but elote seasoning is like super fantastic. And I, I've had, have you ever had like vendor street corn? That's kind of a weird thing to ask, but have you ever had that before? No, uh, I have had um, the, there's a burrito company uh, that is semi regional. It's kind of a New England thing called Boloco, which I'm sure you've, you've had Boloco oh, yeah. from being in the area. Um, and they make burritos. It's kind of like a regional Chipotle sort of a place. Um, we don't have Chipotles, so this is my option. And they do an elote um, or elote style um, filling, which I really like. Ooh, so I've never had street amazing. corn. Um, but yeah, sounds delicious. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I put this on on almost anything. All right, so I feel like that's we got some strong, really strong affirmations. Maybe yeah. like above average. What, let's see if we get some above average denials. What are you denying against? This one might be somewhat average just because of how often I rail against stupid new theology. Um, <laughs> this is a this is a group that has, uh, I'm not sure exactly 
where theologically how this came to be, but it is a a, a website website slash ministry slash church whatever called uh, the New Protestant, um, and and really it's just the old Roman Catholicism, um, or maybe like the old New perspective on Paul. So th- this is uh, this is their New Protestant. I'm doing in air quotations the New Protestant manifesto they have on their website. It says, quote, similar to Martin Luther's historical 95 theses that sparked the Protestant Reformation, the purpose of this manifold is threefold, or manifesto is threefold, to expose, one, to expose the false gospel and doctrines believed by evangelicals, two, to engage in public debate with evangelical pastors and theologians, and three, to spark a new Protestant movement or reformation whose author is Jesus, not Paul, whose counselors are the early church, not Martin Luther or the reformers, and whose soteriology originates with Judaism, not Roman Catholicism. Yeah, so so basically they just want to go back to slavery under the law. And not, not like the, they're not like Judaizers in like the strict sense. But here I'll just I'll just read this little portion. So the they call their uh their soteriology marriage covenant gospel. Wow. Which really makes me afraid for their marriage. I don't say that flippantly. Like <laughs> this makes me afraid for their marriages if this is actually how they view marriages. Yeah. So um what it says here is contrary to this position, which they, they're referring to the Protestant position, which that fair enough, they actually describe somewhat accurately. Contrary to this position, the Bible teaches that the way Jesus has always saved people is by entering into a marriage covenant with them. Sounds so sounds good so far, but Like all marriages, this relationship is not works-based, but rather functions according to the principle of gain and maintain. We enter into, quote, gain, a saving marriage relationship with Christ through faith, and we maintain that relationship through faithful obedience to God's law. As such, two conditions are necessary for the salvation taught in Scripture, faith and faithful obedience. Hence the reason the Bible teaches the final judgment will be according to our deeds, even for those who possess faith in Christ. Our deeds demonstrate whether we were faithful to the marriage covenant. I, I don't need to go. I mean, our listeners are pretty astute, and we've covered this topic under different names enough times. This is this is federal vision theology. This is Roman right. Catholic theology. This is the logical outcome of Arminian theology. This is new perspective on Paul theology. This is just Pelagian theology, somewhat packaged in a new thing. Um, it's funny. I've had a couple interactions with these guys online on on Twitter with the people, and and they don't seem to understand that the things they're saying are just not even repackaged Roman Catholic thought. Right. It's like, it's like when you see online, every once in a while you'll see online, like a, an Iron Man figure or something that looks like an Iron Man action figure. And it's like some sort of cheap knockoff. And it's like, it's like, uh, like cobalt dude or something like that. Or it's like, like iron ally man or something like that. It's just, it's, it's exactly the same thing, but like yeah. slightly askew. Um, and they're doing like, what maybe is innovative innovative about them is how awful and how sinful and wicked their approaches are. So like they're offering $25,000 to anyone who can come to their church and convince them that this is wrong. They're, they're like literally trying to pay people off to, to abandon the gospel. Um, so it's, it's bad. It, it's, I, I feel like I'm going to sound like a really old man at this point. So maybe I am, but I feel like I've been around in the theological 
milieu of the internet now long enough to recognize when something is going to take off and when something is just going to peter out. I think this isn't going to go away quickly. Um, I think we're going to be hearing from these guys for some time. So it would, it would make sense. Uh, I mean, most, most of the people who exist in the sort of more technical reformed, theologically minded world are already well prepared to approach and confront something like this because we are well prepared to approach and confront Federal Vision, New Perspective, Roman Catholic Theology, Arminianism, all these different species of the same basic error. Um, but yeah, I, I almost hesitate to even say to check out their website, but it, it's good to know what you're up against. So the website is newprotestant.com. So just take a look. They're very active on Twitter. Um, and it's the same It's the same playbook, like misquote the church fathers, take verses out of context, um, right. pit, pit Paul against Jesus. Like, it, you know, so it's, it's in some ways it's, it's sort of novel. In some ways it's not. Uh, in reality, it's, it's just basically like warmed over Roman Catholic theology with a sort of a Protestant flavored topping. It's like they went to Trader Joe's and got everything but Roman Catholic soteriology seasoning and, and tossed it all over their Bible exegesis. Yeah. And then stuck it in the microwave for a minute yeah. 30 and came out and blew it up, blew on it. And this is yeah. what you get. Like, yeah. it's just, you stick Pelagianism and Roman Catholicism in your microwave for a minute. 30. Yep. The outside, the outside looks a little bit like Protestantism, but the inside is still frozen solid <laughs> Roman Catholic trash. So, and I don't, I mean, there are lots of Roman Catholic scholars I respect that I think would probably yeah, look at this and would so like spit on the ground in disgust at the way they're approaching this. Right. So anyway, it's, it's bad news. It's just rank heretical works, salvation nonsense. So don't be swept up into it. Don't bother trying to get the $25,000. There's all sorts. I read through it, not because I was interested in doing it. Although if I thought I could, I might go for the $25,000 and then I don't know, do something with it. But um, it's all sorts of stipulations. It's it's a stacked deck. Like there's no way that anyone is going to of be able to do this. So um, yeah, like it, like they say, like we're going to record the conversations. We own all the rights of the conversations. It's very much a scam to try to like, yeah, I don't need to go further than that. Don't be fooled. Be prepared. I have a feeling this is not going away. It's not going to be a flash in the pan. I think we're going to be hearing from these guys for a long time. Yeah, that's totally fair. And speaking of things like not going away, I'd warned you before we started courting that I'm also going to get into that old man kind of grumpy state with my denial. And in some ways, there's some crossover here. So let me set this up just really briefly to keep it hopefully very quick. So yesterday, so that would be, what is today? Today's the 8th, April 7, 2023. The Wall Street Journal published an article called Are Many Jesuses? So you can just file this denial that I'm about to present under Second Commandment violations. And if you want to advance 30, 40 minutes, <laughs> that's fine, because uh, I'm going to bring this up and I think we're going to have some decent conversation real quick about this. So this is mainly an article about the He Gets Us movement. Oh, there was yeah. some stuff, some traction that took place as a result of some commercials that happened allegedly during that, well, apparently during the, the National Football League Super Bowl. But... The whole premise of this article is about how evangelicals, how Christians understand Jesus and the tendency for there to be disagreements in how he's being represented or imaged. And while the article isn't addressing explicitly the second commandment and a violation of the second commandment, I'm going to submit to everybody that that's exactly what we're talking about here. And there's some interesting people referenced in this article, including 
Al Mohler. So let me just read what Al Mohler says in response to this idea of like, and I'm not going to go into like the he gets us. You can look all this stuff up in yourself. But here's what Al Mohler says. He says, when we talk about persons actually coming to faith in Christ, it actually takes the clear presentation of the gospel itself. They have to be told about their sin and all must be told about Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, end quote. So the he gets us movement apparently made a statement in response to that or is trying to explain or articulate or enumerate what they actually mean in this he gets us kind of hashtag. And they said this, we believe Jesus was fully God and fully man, the campaign said in a statement, quote, our media messages focus on his humanity since we have learned these resonate with the widest possible audience. Then we extend an open invitation to engage and learn more, end quote. So this article goes on to talk about all these like various manifestations, but specifically imaging, like literal imaging of Jesus. And I would say to you, you can look it up. Just be warned that you're going to find lots of violations of the second commandment if, in fact, you are prone to have that particular conviction as we are. Here's the bottom line for me. What this article, I think, shows is that when you open this door, when you walk into the room, when you say it's okay to image Jesus, you inevitably end up in this place. We're going to have people taking that image and appropriating it for their own means. And this article goes on to talk about, in specific fashion, how artists recently have portrayed Jesus as multiracial, as female, as androgynous. That comes about because we have not made a stance that says you should not image Jesus. Yeah. So when Christians allow any kind of imaging, this is what you can expect. And it is problematic at best. And at worst, it is, of course, you're going to end up in this place where you're going to, I think what you have here is Christians saying, well, there's some images, some images of Jesus that are totally and totally inappropriate. And they have to make this stance because again, once you let, so to speak, the cat out of the bag, you can't get the cat back in. And so you're basically accommodating that it's okay to image Jesus. And once you've said that, then anybody can take that image and appropriate for appropriate it for a way that they see best suits their particular purpose. So I would say that our listeners should read this article. Again, it's called Are Many Jesuses, and it's by Francis Rocca. The problem is you're going to find lots of images, unfortunately, of Jesus in this. Try to avert your eyes and move quickly to the text. But I think this is helpful because the, the tagline is, and I'm going to quote the author here, at a time of shrinking church membership, Jesus remains a uniquely powerful and popular figure in American culture. The great divide is over what he stands for, end quote. And what he stands for is trying to be expressed in how he is imaged. And that exactly is the problem. So this denial is against our understanding of how we apply that second commandment and that there's a lot of stakes loved ones with this. That's, that's why hopefully you'll hear us, me and Tony is being just like clearly like old men shaking our fists at people who are walking on our lawns. But more specifically that like, God has commanded a way in which he ought to be worshipped. And sometimes he's saying, like, listen, just do not get involved with this because it's just unnecessary. And I think what we find here in this article is like an appropriate reflection of the problem that we have because we haven't taken the second commandment seriously enough with respect to how we understand images of Christ. Yeah, yeah. This is an interesting article. I might have to go and read it. Um, One of the things that I think is different this is going to sound like an old man i feel like i'm saying that a lot today i'm not an old man i feel like uh when i was a kid (laughs) when when i was like a teenager and came to faith 
even even the non-Christians around me still had a, a basic background knowledge of the Bible, right? Mo- most of my peers when I was in middle school, I was actually a little bit of the odd man out. And maybe this is a Midwest thing, but most of my peers were involved in some sort of confirmation program, RCA, Awana, some sort of some sort of after school church program. And I was actually the sort of the weirdo kid that wasn't involved in anything like that. So most most of my friends would go on Wednesday afternoon. We had this thing called religious release where they would get out and, you know, every church in the group in the community that was doing a, a, a midweek, you know, teen education, something or other did it on Wednesday night. And so there was this background knowledge of Christianity and the Bible. And I think people generally understood that the Bible doesn't give us a physical description of Jesus. Like it doesn't tell us what he looked like. That's not the case these days. Um, Most people don't understand that. I, I was, I saw one of those like articles on Facebook that was like, here's a list of 13, 14 historical figures and what AI says they look like. Right. And you're scrolling through the list and there's Napoleon. He looks like this weird sort of troll baby thing. And, you know, there's like there's like Cleopatra and she looks like a supermodel. And and then you find, oh, this is this one looks like Jesus. Or there was this like image. There was this thing on Discovery Channel many years ago that was like we've reconstructed the face of Jesus. And it was like they took a skull from like a first century Jewish person and like reconstructed what they would look like. But I was reading this article and, you know, I scroll down enough where I can't see the image, although the image doesn't look anything like a first century Jew would look like totally not even close to what a, what a, an average man from that era would look like. And I'm reading the article and it says, we told, we, we used the descriptions of Jesus from the gospel to generate this image. And I'm like, first <laughs> of all, obviously you're lying. Like this is not true. And second of all, nobody is going to know that you're lying. Like nobody right. who's reading this exactly. article is you're lying. And the reason that this article is interesting is from a historical perspective, right? There's kind of like the era of there's, there's like the middle ages and then there's the Renaissance and then there's the enlightenment and the enlightenment give way, gives way to modernity. And in, in the enlightenment, people started questioning um, the nature of knowledge and the nature of rational truth. They jettisoned a lot of different things. And then in modernity, Basically, they said the only things that are legitimate and valid as far as knowledge are things that we experience, right? So things like revelation, things like authority, they've they've been totally reshaped. And one of the things that happened was this thing called the quest for the historical Jesus. And, And at the beginning of this sort of like academic program that a lot of different people are involved in, everybody's trying to find like, who's the historical Jesus? And there was all sorts of approaches. And around the middle part of it, there was a, uh, who was it? Uh, wasn't Schweitzer. Maybe it was Schweitzer. I don't remember the name off the top of my head. But there was a guy who basically said he reviewed all of the attempts to retrieve the historical Jesus prior to that moment in time. And he said, basically, all of these people looked down a well. They saw their own reflection in the in the water at the bottom. And they said, there's Jesus. That's the historical right. Jesus. So no matter who we are, if we're trying to retrieve the historical Jesus, we end up creating a Jesus that looks looks very much like us. Not necessarily physically, but but sociologically, ethically, you know, temperament-wise, we we retrieve a Jesus that looks like us. The only remedy for that, and this the reason that that, that plays in is this article. If you read through, I, I gloss through it. Um, it's not behind a paywall. If you want to go find it, exercise caution. There's two CVs all over the place. A lot of this is quest for the historical Jesus kind of stuff. 
I prefer to think of Jesus as the the accepting guy. I prefer to think of Jesus as the cynic sage. Right. I, you know, right. we may have different categories than the historical Jesus movement did, but at the end of the day, it's still just looking down a well and seeing the Jesus that looks like us and saying, there's the historical Jesus. The only remedy for that is to go to the Bible and realize that the Christ of the Bible, the Christ of faith, and the historical Jesus are one and the same. And, and I just think, especially this time of year, right, it's Easter, people are thinking about Jesus, He's Jesus is in the media a little bit more. Um, it's important for us to kind of hold that line, because you're probably going to run into conversations at work where people are talking about this stuff. And, and they're different than they used to be. It used to be that people would talk about Jesus, and they would get the basic facts right. Now it's not even like, we can have articles published in in on blogs that are read by, by thousands of people that say, yeah, we use the, we use the physical descriptions from the gospel. There are no physical descriptions in the gospel. So we have to always be discerning and careful about that. But yeah, this is, this is a crazy, crazy, like historical moment that we live in with this stuff. And you're right. Like we just, the whole world is just like trying to make Jesus in their own image and like come up with a savior that looks just like them. That's kind of the nature of this article. Yeah, it it definitely is. Like it's basically how Jesus can be many things to many people. But I want to emphasize that it they're making that point by reference of his image, right? That he can be all these things, and that they speak a lot about artistry and the importance of doing that. So check check that out. I think that could be helpful in informing what we're talking about here. That again, when we're talking about like these ten words, which is the series that we're, series that we're in, it's not as if like we're saying. Listen, God is prescribing worship because it's effective and that makes it good. It is good because God says this is what is right yeah. in the way that worship is demanded by the one, like the fourth commandment, which like time already eludes us. But yeah. I mean, honestly, this has been an amazing conversation. <laughs> so um, let me read just Exodus 20 and I'm going to read it in the NASB because it's our podcast. We get, to, we get to pick the versions. So, but I think like this is helpful because we're talk about the purpose of this, not in a way maybe you've heard us before, but just in understanding how do we apply the fourth commandment? How do we understand it? How do we again make this normative in our lives? What does God want for us in here? And I would say like, we're not going to bring to you the definitive kind of representation of this, you know, fourth commandment, but I mean, we are, because that's our style. So let me read to you Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what I find in this, like right off the top, is something that's interesting and maybe subtle. And that is, we, we think, of course, of God doing his massive, incredible, creative, creative work on the six days that precede this day and as if like nothing happens on the seventh day but in a strange way in a subtle way there is a type of creation that occurs in the seventh day and that is that god rests and so he creates this idea of rest and then i like the nasb this is why i chose it because of this word the usage here of sanctification that there is like a particular sanctifying that occurs on the seventh day and this itself is a kind of creation. Yeah. So there's something that persists in this for all of us even now. Yeah, yeah. So you can kind of think of it this way. Like, if you think about the language in the Old Testament about setting apart certain instruments for um, for God's purpose, like the, the, the Bible doesn't typically use the word sanctify for that. They usually translate it set apart or consecrate or something like that. Um, Think about it this way. 
if I was a, was a, I don't know, a bowl maker in the old Testament, I don't know if there's a special word for a bowl maker, but I, I'm the guy that makes the bowls, the, the bronze bowls. Right. And I make, I make six bronze bowls and those six bronze bowls are basically identical. They're for common purpose. The seventh day is, is equivalent to when the priest comes selects one of those bronze bowls and sets it apart. So it's like a further step of creation or a further step of um, manufacturing or fabricating in the process. So there's like all of this stuff that's being made and then God sets apart the seventh day. And this is, this is where I think, you know, we, we don't have a lot of time left and and that's, that's on us. And, but this is our podcast. We can do what we want to. That's, um, that's I, I only say that cause that's not to, that is not to, say that we think this is a less significant thing. And it just is how it's shaped out. But one of the things that I think is, is missing in a lot of Christian reflections on the Lord's day, we could get into all of the talk about what you can and can't do and what's permissible and what's not permissible. Um, I actually, Scott Clark answered this sort of a question similar to this on his show recently. He basically said, like, I'm not going to get into all of the details of what you can and can't do, because that's really a conversation that you need to have right. with your pastor and like is really your your own conscience. It's not to say there isn't a right and a wrong answer, but like some some guy talking on the Internet is probably not the right person to look at the situation and say, yeah, tossing a football back and forth with your kid on a Saturday. That's really out of line. Right. That, right. That's just not what we're about here. Like there, there's a right way. There's a wrong way. Um, but it, it's really something you need to explore with your pastor. But the thing that I think is missing and, and maybe like the foundational question that needs to be asked before you can get into the specifics is the Lord set apart the seventh day and he made it holy. We keep the Sabbath not to make it holy, but to right. keep it holy and not, not, not in some sense, like if we don't. The, the language that the confession, the Westminster Catechism uses to sanctify the Sabbath, right? That's the confessional language. It's not as though somehow our lack of sanctifying corrupts the day. What it's saying is keep, keep the Sabbath holy in your own mind, like yes. set the Sabbath apart. And, and we could get into a whole discussion about how, how it came to be that the Lord's day, the seventh day uh, became the first day, like how that, transitioned. Um, I, I don't think we have time to do that, but the, the Lord's day is the Sabbath, right? So, right. so when we're talking about the Sabbath, we're not talking about Saturday anymore. We're talking about Sunday and we as Christians need to set that day apart as holy in our own minds. Like we have to set it apart and that may look different. That's going to necessarily look differently for different people. Um, right. there are some, Right. There, there are prob probably, I'm not going to comment on what they are, but there are probably things that are absolutely not okay on the Sabbath. There are probably some things that are absolutely okay on the Sabbath. And then I think most things, most activities that you might ask, can I do this on the Sabbath? Most things fall into this category of, well, it depends, right? So Scott, Scott's example was, can I play baseball on the Sabbath? Or can I play softball on the Sabbath? And he, he kind of came down like, well, it's probably not a great idea to participate in like an organized softball league on the Sabbath, but like, can I go out in the backyard and play softball with my family? He said like, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to make a firm answer, but yeah, probably like, so all of those things are, it's the, the first order question is not, is this activity on the approved list or is this activity on the non-approved yes. list? 
there are some things that yeah, like sin. Don't sin on the Sabbath. I mean, don't sin any day. But like the Westminster, um, the Westminster divines in their wisdom and in their reflection on the biblical, the biblical testimony, sinning on the Sabbath is more grave than not than sinning on other days. Like there's a there's a gravity to wantingly wantonly disobeying God's law on the Sabbath, which is a day set apart for His purposes, than on a secular day and on a non set apart day. But before we can even ask the question and answer the question of what's on the approved list and what's not on the approved list, we have to think first about the fact that we have to set the day apart. I actually think if you get that part of it right, yeah, if you think about what does it look like in my life to actually set apart this day as separate and devoted to the Lord, what does that look like? A lot of the other things about, can I do this? Can I do that? Is this okay? Is that okay? A lot of those things actually answer themselves. So like, for example, this is just, and this isn't to lift me up or to, I have a job that is 24 seven, right? I don't typically have work to do in the middle of the night or very early in the morning, but I'm a salaried employee. So it's not uncommon for me to get an email at 7.30 or eight o'clock at night that I need to look at on my phone and think about, do I need to do something with this? Or do I not need to do something about this? Now, we're not going to get into it, but there are things like works of necessity, works of charity, things like that that are acceptable, permissible things to do on the Sabbath. I feel like my job actually falls into that. But when I think about what it means to set apart the Sabbath as holy, I actually don't even pick up my work phone to do anything on the Sabbath. And my coworkers actually know that if they need to get a hold of me on the Sabbath, they should call my my personal phone number instead of my work phone number because my my work phone is going to be sitting on the charger in my office and I'm not in there. So my behavior and the way I think about like even even simple things like do I grab both of my phones when I leave the house on Sunday or do I just take my personal phone? That is the kind of thing that like your life, your behavior, your outlook on what happens on Sunday because you treat that day as differently all of your behavior will kind of logically follow after that. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So let's, again, we, we have zero meetings about our episodes and you <laughs> helped me propagate this weird setup on all our listeners because <laughs> some of these students may have noticed that I started at verse 11, but I started in the middle of actually this commandment. Oh, and you I didn't even notice to, that. Yeah. To like set up and enumerate what we're talking about here. So let me back up just two verses to nine and 10. So this is Exodus 20 beginning verse nine. Six days you shall labor and do your work. Verse 10, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. And then, of course, verse 11 is what I've already talked about. So I think you're right on. So this idea that God, first of all, gives us the Sabbath as a gift. Jesus Jesus makes that very explicit when he says, like, listen, this was a gift for man. And so this idea that God in his great mercy says to us in the pattern of who he is in his own uh, kind of a communication of his essential attributes that we are not what we do. And we can start there. Like I think what you're arguing for, like let's get first principles of the Sabbath down. And we understand first principles, we'll have less arguments about whether or not I should go out to eat, whether or not I can laugh. And again, some people will find those things to be extreme examples, but Throughout history, and even in our contemporary times, people have big convictions about whether or not those two things 
are appropriate. So just as like we have this cosmic gardener, and which by the way, when I say cosmic gardener, we're, we're, we're already pulling in like Genesis 2, that this idea of the Sabbath isn't new in Exodus. It's not like the right. people came out of Egypt. And God was like, you know what I should establish? Finally, I mentioned this earlier, is some kind of pattern of rest, some kind of gift for you all. So the cosmic gardener, he's going to work for six days. He rests on the seventh day in order to provide a pattern for the earthly gardener. So God is resting. He's blessing the seventh day. He's making it holy. He's setting it apart in all the ways you've just described. This explains why the Exodus people knew of Sabbath days before the law was even given. So in many ways, this is, I mean, this is kind of a hard word, but like recapitulation. The Sabbath is not, first of all, like this kind of redemptive ordinance, but it's a creation ordinance that God has shaped in scripture to each major stage in biblical history. In other words, like from Adam to Moses, from Moses to Christ, from Christ to all of eternity. So as such, it may now be kind of like de-lawified, if that makes sense in certain respects. It continues to be like an integral part of God's pattern for his image in his creation and typological redemption in the Mosaic ordinances and in the fulfillment of his promise to give rest in Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, no matter how good your day was, no matter what you did, what you want is rest. And it's a loving gift that God says, I want to establish that pattern. I want to establish this privilege that you might have rest, rest in me. And it is this idea, I think you started by saying this, a remembrance. Yeah. So this application is going to be varied. So in, in my own life, for instance, we ha- my wife and I have particular convictions about this in a super kind of weird way. So we both enjoy is too strong a word. Well, maybe not for Jen, my wife. For me, it is. We enjoy, quote unquote, running. <laughs> um, but here's what you'll find. If you are a runner and you like to run races, that is like participate in events where you're on a foot race with lots of people. I've seen in my own lifetime, this migration to those events happening on the Lord's day. Yeah, And we refuse to participate in those because Firstly, they generally would take us away from worship with God's people on the Lord's day. And second, because it distracts us from the purpose of that day. So as you've kind of said, we know plenty of people that rest too much. So this commandment can't just be about, well, take some time off. Right, right. It's you're resting from something, but to something else. So the conviction I've always felt heavy on my life is, if my Lord's day looks too much like any other day, then I'm doing it wrong because God has called us to make it separate and set apart. Yeah. Not because it sanctifies us, but because the day itself is meant to pull us away from and towards him. So we do have to understand and ask ourselves what activities would allow us to embrace that. You know, you're like, there are some like Jonathan Edwards would say you shouldn't laugh on the Lord's day as I referenced before. Yeah. And I think we would say, well, that, that seems to be, I understand like the, the intent behind that, but that's taking it too far. And yet there was some to say, well, there's no difference. It's another Saturday. Right. Just do whichever you want to do. It's a day for rest. And we're saying it's a day for rest, but it's this kind of eschatological spiritual rest that sets us apart and, and represents God himself. And then prepares us for the week ahead. So I yeah. guess, the point is, as Christians, we do have to wrestle with this, right? Like it's God gives us this to us as a gift. So many see this as a burden, and that's a misunderstanding. But then we do have to try to find ways in which we apply it. Now, everybody is a runner. So for me to say, well, like most races, half marathon marathons happen on a Sunday, you would say, many people would say, like, I don't care about that. So it's it's not a worry yeah. or a concern of mine. But my wife is particularly good at this. I want to boast in her for a second. 
She has a lot of friends who run. She runs regularly with people whom she loves. Many of them are non-Christian. And so they're always trying to get her to say like, let's do this thing. It's going to be super fun. We're going to go to this place. We're going to run on a Sunday. And she routinely says to them, I cannot do that because my obligation is to be with God's people on the Lord's day. And that's yeah. what she says it to worship him. And that stops them. And it, it, it actually makes them ask questions. It's not that this is like some kind of like bait and switch, like some kind of like presuppositional or evangelistic gag to get them to ask about right, that. Right. But it is a proper representation of how we feel convicted in order in the way in which we spend our Lord's day. And it is a way that she's able to have this entry point into real conversation about her faith. And so as silly as it may seem, her saying, I just will not run on that day. They actually, because my wife is fantastically good at expressing God's grace, they do not see this as legalism. What they see it as, as commitment and priority. And so this allows them to have real, like gut level conversation about what it, who God is and what it means to worship him properly. And so I admire that. And God gives that again as a gift to us in setting lines or demarcations around the Lord's day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there are also some subtle things that we don't even, we don't even think about that signal to those around us, how we think about the, the Lord's day. So like, um, if you think about the calendar and this is going to seem weird and esoteric, I think you probably know where I'm going. Cause we've talked about this before, but <laughs> right. if you think about the calendar, right. The first day of the week is Sunday, right. well, but we call it the weekend. So like yeah. even that, even that is a subtle shift in the culture away from setting apart the, the, it used to be that the Sunday was the first day of the week. Saturday was the last day of the week. And, and, and there's, there's a, there's sort of like a metaphysical reality to that in a certain sense. Like it shapes the way we think about time shapes the way we experience time. This is all very philosophical, but That's great. This transition in the United States, particularly, which I think I, I think that was really the, the beginning of it, and it kind of it got exported to the rest of the world, but don't quote me on that. This transition to now think of Saturday and Sunday as the weekend, uh, which is now set apart from your work. What you're sanctifying is your ability to not be working. That that's what right. the the cultural sanctification of the weekend is, right? Those are the days you, you go party on Saturday or you go see a movie, you do you catch up on your chores on Sunday. Um, I'm not here to say like, it's, it's totally out of line to spend a little bit of your time on Sunday doing some housework. Like that's, that's not our jam. That's not our lane. We're not going to do that. But this idea that Sunday is just, it's just an extension of Saturday. It's just an extension of Saturday is, is actually like a cultural phenomena that we need to push against. Right. And, and like, I, I, I often have these instances at, at work or when I'm dealing with somebody where I have an opportunity to say something that makes them think I'm a little weird, but I do it strategically. So like, I will sometimes say to people, have a nice Saturday instead of have a nice weekend. Yeah. And, and I've, I've had just a handful of people ask me what that's all about. And it opens this door to say like, well, I mean, Sunday's the first day of the week. And then I say, I'm not just being pedantic about that though, because like, this right. is a part of my Christian faith actually. That Sunday is the first day of the week. And there are theological implications to that, right? We, we talked about this. I think it was like a beach cast when we were in Plymouth, Massachusetts. That tells you how long ago that was. It doesn't <laughs> tell anyone else how long ago that was. And we talked about the fact that like in the old covenant, 
you worked for six days in order to obtain your rest on the seventh. Right. But in the new covenant, you rest and then you get to work. Right. It's it's in the old covenant. You have to do, 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 do. And then you rest. And in yes. the new covenant, you rest. And from that position of rest exactly. and restoration is where you now go forward and do your work. So it's 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 not just a pedantic word game to be like, oh, yeah, we'll have a happy Saturday on that first day of the week. Sometimes it feels like that, but it actually is really a, a theologically significant thing to say to people. And and the other thing I think is is key for us to remember too. So here, here's maybe a couple like guidelines that I use. I, I'm sure people, we kind of advertise ourselves as like we get technical and then we get practical. So I want to give a couple practical thoughts before we wrap it up. The practical things that I look at when I'm trying to decide whether something is appropriate on the Sabbath. The first question I always ask is, is this going to take me out of the Lord's Day worship? So it's not the case that the only relevant feature of the Lord's Day is the worship service that you attend. But the relevant, the most relevant feature of the Lord's Day, and I think I'm on good grounds to say that, is whether or not you're worshiping with the saints in the assembly of the people of God. For sure. Right. So, so if whatever activity you're thinking about, whether it's running or for me, like I've mentioned this before, like watching the world cup, like the world cup, which I wait for every four years. And this last time I waited for eight years and I was so excited about it that I got in the local newspaper about it. I didn't watch the final because it was on a Sunday morning. It would have required me to skip church as much as I would love to do that as much as I would not, not skip church, but as much as I would love to watch the final and go down to the local pub where everybody's excited about it. I could make all sorts of arguments too. Like, well, I could share the gospel while I'm there. I could, I can be a good testimony. I can do all those things, but it requires me to miss the Lord's day worship. And then the next question is like, are there other things going on in the gathered assembly of God's people on the Lord's day that I would be taken away from? So like lots of traditions have a Sunday service, or maybe your church does a Bible study or a fellowship lunch or something like that. Is the activity that I'm going to take part in, is that going to take me away from spending the day with God's people? I think once you get past that point, it starts to become a matter of wisdom. What what is actually contributing to rest? What is furthering my ability to worship the Lord on this day? For some people, it may mean like I need to get out of the house and take a walk. For me, I'll be just transparent. One of the things that I do every Sunday is I take August, we get in the car, we go to Target, and I buy a coffee at Starbucks and we walk around Target together. And that is, for me, that's that's time for me to spend with my son. I don't get a lot of time with him because of the way my work schedule works. So that's time for me to spend with him. It's time that uh, that my wife gets to spend in some quietness that she doesn't get for the rest of the week. I know right. that she oftentimes, that's the time she gets to sit down with some uninterrupted time to read a book or, or you know, whatever. Um, I've mentioned in the past that sometimes I'll do a little bit of house cleaning on Sunday because it actually helps my my mind kind of like disconnect and reset from other things that are distracting right me. So it's it's not as though there's a single one size fits all. I have friends who I respect who would say that it's absolutely sinful for me to go to Target and buy a Starbucks coffee on a Sunday. Right. And I just respectfully disagree with them. And and to their credit, they respectfully disagree with me. I've never gotten into a fight with somebody that I respect about the fact that I might order a pizza on Sunday instead of buying lunch. Uh, I understand there are people that are probably like, like clutching their pearls in, in disgust at, at this conversation, realizing that Tony's not like the most strict Sabbatarian that there ever was. But I think this is a situation, like I said, 
there are some things that are probably absolutely out of line on the Sabbath. There are some things that are are absolutely 100% in line on the Sabbath. You don't have to ask the question as to whether it's okay to go to Bible study on the Sabbath or whether right. it's okay right. to pray with your family on the Sabbath. Um, there are some people who would say like you shouldn't you shouldn't take a family walk on the Sabbath. That's recreation. You shouldn't do that. Or you shouldn't you shouldn't run or you know you shouldn't take your kid to the park on the Sabbath. I, I can't go there. So I just think we have to have grace for each other and we have to sort of have this rubric, right? Because we don't always have time to like sit down and do like a formal study on a question to make a decision. Like, uh, am I going to order a pizza on Sunday or not? I don't know. But if I have this framework that sort of like rank prioritizes the the issues at hand, it helps me to make decisions in a way that are I think are God honoring. I mean, I'm sure I get it wrong. I'm sure I get it right sometimes. But we just have to like, think about and as i said earlier i think if you really if you really set the lord's day apart as holy in your mind and in your heart first and foremost a lot of these other things are just they're just going to fall into place and your conscience yeah. and the holy spirit is is a reliable guide for christians to say like you know i i probably could make an argument that it was okay for me to one sunday out of a year to to miss church and i'll go to an evening service at another church and you know blah 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 i probably could have done that there was never a question in my mind whether it was okay for me to watch the Lord's the World Cup on that day or right. more more applicable to people. It's never been, and not just because I don't like football, it's never been a question in my mind that spending several hours on a Sunday afternoon to watch the watch the Super Bowl has not been, it's not an appropriate thing for me. I don't think it's an appropriate thing for anybody, but I'm right. not gonna, I'm not gonna like bust in on someone else's Super Bowl party and try to be like, yeah, you can't do this. This is inappropriate. So I just think we have to have grace for each other and we have to like think about these things. A lot of evangelicals, they just don't even think about these things. Yeah, I, I think that's like a good way to wrap this up. This idea that, again, to emphasize the Sabbath is a gift. It's provided as like a wonderful way of regulating the whole life. It provides yeah. an inbuilt weekly time and motion state to help us live well. That God doesn't give us this Sabbath as a burden to create some kind of set of rules of things that we can't do, but instead that we might be saved from those things to worship him in a way that presents us holy and separate and rested and restored for the week ahead. And I think there is a great deal of liberty in that. Although I would say, I think along with you, that there is also as well, like a hired edge that there are some things that should be without compromise. That is anything that takes us away from corporate worship on the Lord's Day unnecessarily, or let's say it this way, volitionally, and again, there are exceptions here, but like volitionally should give us pause to consider whether or not we're trying to replace something else as saying, well, this is going to be more restful for me yeah. than obeying God. And, and I think that's, that's aside from all the, the technical and the vocational things we've talked about, all those things are still in play. But I think for most people, what we're asking is, would you consider what God says here about the importance of this day? And again, some would say, you know, for one person, they would say, when I, as your example with walking, for instance, or Target, going into my garden to work is a form of great rest, liberation and right. restoration for me. While the other person like me would say, I'd prefer not to do any yard work yeah. on Lord's Day. And the last thing I'd like to bring up, because this is kind of been impounded in the conversation, but we haven't addressed it, is language matters. It shapes our rubric. It shapes the way that we understand things. You probably heard Tony and I speak about Sunday as the Lord's Day. And that's something that I invoked a long time ago because it helps me 
to again appreciate and to articulate and to understand that this day is set apart. It is God's day. It right. is like the, the only holiday that he has created for us. And it's amazing that he said, you know, like we wait for Christmas to come around or we wait for Easter to come around. We wait for our birthdays to come around because it's one day in 365. And then God says, listen, as significant as your birthday is, which is a special event of like celebrating you, I wish to be and desire to be and command to be celebrated every one in seven. Yeah. We're just not used to holidays occurring that frequently. And that's why we say like, this is the Lord's day. I think we start to express it in those terms. It also starts to shape how we understand it. And that is also just like in immensely biblical. So I would encourage as like an aside for you to speak about it as the Lord's day, both like to your Christian brothers and sisters and also those that are outside. So uh, just like you, my own boss, who is very kind, understands that on the Lord's day, like there's not going to, I'm not going to check email. If anything important comes up, it just won't happen on that day yeah. because it is set aside for worship and for rest and turning towards God and away from the normal activities, the normative stuff that happens all the other six days. And so I just love that my wife and I can say, like, that's a hot, like, I actually look forward to it as a holiday. Is that, is that, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like, yeah, I get for excited sure. That you and I are recording this on a Saturday, that tomorrow is the Lord's Day. And so, because of that, it comes with all these attendant blessings that are great gifts that prepare me for the week ahead, but also remind me that one, I am not what I do for a living. And two, that I'm a child of God and the children of God get a holiday. Yeah. One every seven days. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll add a three to that. Like the, the, the credit union isn't going to burn to the ground if Jesse is not available on a Sunday. Well, that's, that's definitely true. Yeah. So like I, th- there's an element of the Sabbath too. We, we won't get into it because it, we just won't, but there's an element of the Sabbath too, that involves trusting God that things are going to be fine without you continuing to keep them moving. Right. My, my job, uh, the people who call me have real needs and, and in some ways, like I'm, I'm the stopping point. And if I don't get things moving for them, then their healthcare is off track. Like that's a reality of my job. And, and that's part of why I say like my job has an element that like is a work of necessity. Occasionally I'll have a case that I need to continue through on the weekend and keep on pursuing something for somebody for them to have the healthcare that they need. But all of that said, the, the Sabbath is the Lord's day. And in, in the Lord's day, we trust the Lord to keep things moving, right? It's, it's God's creation. It's his recreation. It's his sustaining, his resting and sustaining the universe. And I want to close with this because I think one other practical element of this, I've already kind of alluded to it, but but I'll say it straight out, is that the evangelical world that most of us either came out of or still live in or have family members and friends that are in, the only thing really special about the Lord's Day is actually the service on Sunday morning. Mm. And that's I think that's all good and well. Like That's an important element of it. But one of the things that as reformed Christians, I think we can do. So I'm, I'm going to read this from the book of Hebrews. This is a real familiar passage to anybody. Um, I'm going to start in verse 23, which is not where usually where this is. So this is Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to say her name uh, because I don't have permission to do that. But we, we, um, my wife and I have a friend who is a, a Christian woman, but is somewhat of a new Christian in a certain sense. And um, one of the things that I think is a struggle for a lot of new Christians is understanding the seriousness and the significance of the Lord's Day. And one of the things that you and I have talked about this offline is even during times where we're not with our immediate Christian family, when we're traveling on the Lord's Day or something happens and we're not able to be there, we still make every effort to be a part of some Christian assembly on the Lord's Day. For sure. That actually has served as a catalyst for my wife to speak to this woman who it's her friend. I mean, I know her too, but to speak to this woman about the importance of the Lord's day and right. has actually shared with her like, yeah, I mean, our family takes this really seriously. We, we, we even, when we're traveling, when we're on vacation, we even try to find somewhere to worship. Yep. And, and this is in contrast to people who sometimes are like, yeah, I'm a little bit tired. I don't really feel like going to church this Sunday. And that, that has had a positive impact. Like I've heard people that I know that that's been shared with who've talked about that fact that like they almost feel, um, I say this in, in sort of a, a timid way, they almost feel shamed by the fact that someone else takes the Lord's day so seriously. And I think that that's part of what's going on in this passage, right? Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Well, what's the primary way that we hold fast to the confession of our hope? By joining with other Christians and confessing that hope together on the Lord's Day. So mm -hmm. let us not neglect the meeting together as some have. So I'm not going to go through a whole like exegetical case on that, but I just think the Reformed tradition, even more than some other traditions, really puts this emphasis and privilege on the Lord's Day as a whole on the preaching of the word, on the Lord's day, the gathering of God's people. And that is a testimony not only to the, the world at large, but to our Christian brothers and sisters who may not have, I would say, who don't have the appropriate sanctifying impulse for the Lord's day. We can show them through our own obedience to what God has to say and our own prioritizing. And here's, here's I know I've said this is the last thing I'll say like seven times, but... <laughs> If we truly, this, this is going to sound really law heavy and I don't mean it to do, but if we truly love the Lord and we, we have this opportunity to spend time with him in a special way, um, why wouldn't we take advantage of that? Why, why wouldn't that be the highlight of our week? So I love my wife. I see her every day, right? I see her all the time. But if I have a, if I have an opportunity to really spend devoted time with her, special devoted time with her, I take that opportunity because it's important and it's special to me. Special right. to our marriage. It's special for our relationship. It's special to me. And not even just in a marriage. Like if I have a friend that's coming in from out of town um, that I might talk to frequently, but he's going to be here. He's going to be in town and I can actually go and have lunch with him in person. I'll cancel things off my schedule to do that. We should have at a minimum, we should have that same perspective of the Lord's day. Cause that's where right. he's promised to meet us is in the Lord's day worship. He's promised to meet us in a special way that he doesn't meet us other days of the week. So even just kind of the same take that we've had with like images, like, yeah, it, you know, maybe it's true that the re reformed position is not right, but why risk it? Why risk misrepresenting the Lord? Maybe it's true that saying, oh my gosh, is not actually 
blasphemy. But why why not actually hold the Lord's name in such high regard that you don't even right. come close to it? You don't even come close to dishonoring it. Why not hold this special time that the Lord has set apart for his people? And I'm not talking about the service. I'm talking about the Lord's day itself. Why not hold that special day in high regard? Why not do that? So I don't know. I mean, we could we could separate on this for a long time, I think. Uh, but I don't think we have to. I think people get the point. So we'll wrap it up. Jesse, Jesse, save me from this spiral of of repetitiveness. No, you're right on. I, I think where we're landing on this is this idea that the Lord's Day is a blessing, that it gives it to us. It's for us. It's an amazing gift. And it would be like if somebody gave you an amazing gift of whatever kind of nature that you would say, I really should use that thing. And you set it aside in your closet and you shut the door and you maybe only look at it from time to time, that God has given this to us, for us, and that he is for us. And this is one of the ways in which he manifests that great blessing and that great love that he has for us. So it's just the kind of thing that maybe has been left, not necessarily that like unintellectually like assented to, but not tried in the sense that we really need to lean into what does he have for us in this day? So loved ones, you're reasonable people. Go to back to the scriptures, process for yourselves. But the clarion call here is that we might actually lean into the Lord's day and try to understand what it means for us and the way in which we behave on that particular day. And again, I would just submit to you that this was meant to be and is in fact an actual blessing. So you don't need the government to tell you that it is. You don't need regional laws to shut down stores for you. What you need to do and what we need to do is to process what it means to worship God rightly. And as we've talked about, this whole idea of going through the 10 laws in many ways is so that we might come to the place where we understand what it means to worship God rightly because he is worthy of that worship. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, um, if you're interested, if, if this show has been beneficial to you, or if you think that it would be beneficial to someone that, you know, there's a couple things that I would, I would personally ask you to do. So I would love it if you would go to Apple uh, podcasts, even if you don't have an Apple podcast account, uh, go there and leave us a review. So one of the things that is true is that contrary to what every podcast you've ever heard tells you, it doesn't actually change our search rankings, right. uh, but what it does do is it helps other people know whether the show is worth their time. So go to the podcast review. We read all these reviews, um, go to it, leave us an honest comment and a, a rating to let us know what you think of the show. And if this has been helpful to you, or if there's someone you think it would be helpful, write an email and send them the link. Hey, I heard this show. Uh, what do you think about this? Start a conversation. Um, the show has always been primarily grown through word of mouth and that's right. Jesse and I, and I keep on saying this, eventually we'll tell you what we're actually planning, but Jesse and I have some, some pretty <laughs> big plans for the reform brotherhood, uh, yes. that we, we want to get in place and it's going to require us to be able to have a community of people that support us, not just financially through things like Patreon, but people who, who read our content, listen to our content, share our content. We really want to continue to share the gospel and just good theology. Those two things aren't exactly the same thing, but share the gospel and share good reformed theology for the edification of God's people. We really, really want that to be the reality. And that's going to require people helping us by sharing it, by, by giving us reviews, by recommending it. So go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and then go from that very same spot and send a, send a link to somebody that would benefit from this. 
Uh, and if you want to get involved in other ways, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com. Uh, there's a little link in the top right corner that says join the brotherhood. There's all sorts of ways that you can, can get involved. You know, you can go to the telegram channel, you can join us on Patreon, you could buy a t-shirt, you know, whatever you want to do. Yeah. And of course you can expect us to be back next week in which will be like the most downloaded episode of all parents <laughs> everywhere. Yes. But until we talk about that fifth commandment, let's honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.